The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, good morning. Welcome to church. My name is Jimmy. If it's your first time here, it's really great to have you with us. Um, yeah, like Andrew said, we are reading, we're in a series at the moment in Philippians. Um, going through this really wonderful letter of Paul's. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please keep them open to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Um, we've been in Philippians, I think this is week number four. And if you weren't here last week, the passage today really very much follows on from what we talked about last week. So just to recap a little bit last week, Paul's concern in the, at the end of Philippians chapter 1 was to encourage the the church in Philippi to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Jesus Christ has promised us eternal, exponential joy in him, in heaven, for eternity. That is a guarantee for those who have put their faith in Christ. That is a a guarantee that's going to happen. And as citizens of heaven, we are to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And Paul illustrated that last week, talking about it as being something that we do to, we we stand together with other believers. We get together with other believers and we encourage one another in the faith, united together in one spirit, united together in one accord and united together as we contend together for the gospel bolstering one another's faith, encouraging one another in their walk with God to say, hey, come on, keep following Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. I know you're going through a hard time. Or let's celebrate this. Let's keep trusting in Jesus. And the idea of this was to not just so that as Christians we can survive in a world that is hostile to Christianity, but also thrive in that. That was last week. That's what we looked at last week. And then Paul's concern in our passage today, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, is to really help the Philippian church confront what is perhaps the greatest obstacle to living a life that is worthy of the gospel. That obstacle exists not outside of the church, but in every single heart in this room. And it can only be overcome by pursuing Jesus-centered, Jesus-saturated, and Jesus-motivated humility. The path to unity as a church is paved with humility. Not just any humility. The kind of humility that we see modeled in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if I could sum up today's teaching, we could say that the path to unity is humility, and there ain't no humility like that of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word, that we can know you, that we can open up this word and encounter you. We, we praise you, Lord, that these are more than just words on a page. It's more than just ink on paper, Lord. In your word is life. This word is a double-edged sword. This word is profitable to us. This word is alive. And so we thank you and praise you, Father, that those things are true and this word is from you. 
So Holy Spirit, as we spend this time in your word, would you open it to us? To those concealed parts of our hearts that remain closed to you, Lord, would you open our hearts to you? God, would you glorify yourself in our midst this morning? Would you help us to see how great you are, as we were singing earlier? Help us this morning, Lord. Be with us. Amen. What is a unified church? Quite simply, a unified church is a group of people who, being enormously unsatisfied with the lies of the world and the false promises of a, of a great future, we repent and we believe in the gospel. We look at Jesus, we respond to Jesus, and we say, yes, he is my Lord and Savior, and we become united to Jesus by faith, and therefore, by association, we also become united to other believers as we journey together on that pilgrimage of faith. A united church, then, obeying their Lord's instructions, devote themselves to loving one another, to caring for one another, to praying for one another, to providing for one another, to encouraging one another, to bearing one another's burdens, to speaking the truth to one another in love, to celebrating and weeping with one another, to telling the gospel to one another, and basically doing all of the other one another's in God's word. There's that phrase, one another, appears about a hundred times in 94 different New Testament verses. We simply can't Follow Christ well without considering one another. The Apostle Paul gets this, and we can sense his passion for unity in the church by all of those unifying words in verse 2. He says, Think the same way, have the same love, unite in spirit, be intent on one purpose. Unity in the church is essential because fellowship with other Christians is essential for building one another up in the faith. But what should unite us? What should be the gravitational force that we all orbit around? Our world is increasingly dividing and fracturing over all sorts of issues and topics, and it seems to me that those issues and topics are getting more and more trivial each week. In that dividing world, what should unite the church? Well, Paul gives us the answer here. It's not demographics. It's not politics that unite the church. It's our union with Christ. Jesus Christ is our reason to unite together in the faith. When you become united to Jesus Christ by faith, you automatically become united to all of these other people who have had the exact same experience of grace from Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where they come from, how old they are, where they live, we become united to, to Jesus Christ and also we unite to one another. Jesus Christ is the reason behind those four if any, statements in verse 1. Let me just read them to you again. He says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, 
Paul's effectively asking, is there any encouragement from Jesus Christ to unite to other believers? Did Jesus ever show love to people who were hard to love? Do we actually have fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Has God been merciful and compassionate towards us? The answer is, of course, and undeniably, yes. Paul's actually been quite ironic here by asking really simple questions, asking, is there any skerrick of fellowship or love or encouragement or compassion or mercy from Jesus? Of course there is. It's like asking, is water wet? Is there sand at King's Beach? Yes. Is there any affection and love in Jesus Christ? Yes. Of course there is encouragement in Christ. Of course there is consolation in his love. Of course we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Of course we have experienced mercy and affection from Jesus. Then, says Paul, if that's the case, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In other words, in the deepest parts of your soul, in your motivations and in your agendas, in the way that you think and process everything that's going on, and in the way that you show love and compassion to those around you, that's how we should be united. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, there is every reason to unite to other believers in every way. When we seek to be united with those in our church, it says something about the God who has united us into his people. You see, unity in the church is so much more than a bunch of people who all agree on the same mission statement. That's important, that's good. But primarily, unity in the church is a group of people recognizing that we are sinners who have received the grace of God. It won't do to be all smiles on Sunday and all gossip on Monday. Think for a moment if you're harboring right now any kind of grudge towards a brother or sister, any kind of negative attitudes or thoughts towards a brother or sister in faith, did you know that God wants to do something with that part of your life? Namely, he wants to remind you of what Jesus has done for you and that you and I have actually given God every reason to hold a grudge against us, but he won't. He won't do that to us. We will never have to forgive anybody for as much as Jesus Christ has forgiven us. If you're a Christian, then Jesus has forgiven you fully. He has served you fully, and he has loved you fully, and it was his pleasure and delight to do so. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I can't say that of you. It would be kind for me to say, that's not true of you. You are not forgiven of your sins. They are still on your shoulders. But the opportunity to be released from those sins, to have those sins of yours which have accumulated beyond your control, all of them to be taken off you and placed onto the broad shoulders of the Son of God, never to be yours again. That's the grace of God. If you're a Christian, that's what's happened for you. And Jesus is filled to the brim with affectionate love for you and I. So how do we go about you being unified? What does that actually look like? Paul, this is what Paul gets into next. If what those last two verses uh, that we've been talking about, if, if we could call them the reasons for Christian unity, what he talks about here should be called the practice of Christian unity. 
He says in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. The greatest obstacle to unity in the church does not come from outside the church, but comes from within the heart. This is Paul's point here. Unity in the church is not possible without humility in the heart. Unity in our church is not possible without humility in our hearts. Now, the more I think about this, the more I'm convinced that this is perhaps the most radical thing, or at least one of the most radical things that anybody could ever say. You see, every single one of us has this problem called sin in our hearts. And sin tells us to do the opposite of Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Sin says, consider yourself more important than anybody else. My sin puts me at the center of my universe and makes me expect everybody else to do the same thing about me. Like when I'm sinful, I expect all of you to be putting me at the center of your universe. That's what sin does to me. When God should be at the center of my universe, I put myself there. And this is the source of every problem that I face. It's the reason behind every argument that I have and every frustration that I endure. Whether it's me putting myself at the center of the universe or somebody putting themselves at the center of the universe. Now, I'm willing to admit that, you know, most of the time, it's me. Like, but sometimes it's others. Like, at least 99.9% of the time, it's me putting myself at the center of the universe. The other 0.1% of the time, my problems come from somebody else. You see, this is a problem for all of us. We all have, we, we all stand in front of God Almighty and we enthrone ourselves. We say, no, I should be the one up on that throne. I should be the one in the center of the universe. And what makes sin particularly sinister, is that it's mostly an invisible activity. Sin is mostly an invisible activity. We can point to all the sins that are committed, but those sins are birthed from the heart. They are all in the heart. You can, this is why Paul says, you can do a really good deed, but out of selfish ambition and conceit. You can serve the poor, you can pray, you can preach, and still be motivated by selfish ambition and conceit. It's empty glory. Looks really good on the outside. People will applaud you for it. Wow, well done. But you can be doing that to put yourself at the center of the universe. This is why. When Paul talks about unity in the church, he doesn't prescribe acts of unity. He prescribes humility because humility gets right to the heart of things. Humility unseats us from the center of the universe. It takes us off the throne. If self-centeredness is a cancer, humility is the scalpel that cuts it out. Humility comes along after repentance. If sin is enthroning yourself, humility comes along after repentance as the act of willingly hopping off that throne. Now, Paul's words here in verses 3 and 4, they're rather simple. Think of others first. Put others first. As I was thinking about this, 
uh, this week, these verses this week, I was driving through Brisbane and um, I was on Lutwidge Road. If you know Lutwidge Road in Brisbane, it's a very busy road. And I uh, was driving along there and there was lots of traffic and there was an ambulance, lights blaring, sirens wailing, coming towards me in the opposite direction. And both myself and the ambulance were approaching this intersection and uh, there was a gentleman to the left on, on the road trying to cross. And just as the ambulance got there, he got a green light. Now, he would have been waiting there for a long time at that set of lights, and I know that because I used to live in that area, and I know that set of lights, and that is a long set of lights. And as soon as his light turned green, the ambulance came, and so he stopped and waited for the ambulance to go by. And then he waited, and instead of pulling out through that red light, because it was a really quick one, he waited and had to wait for his next turn. That's what humility looks like. Now, I'm not saying that that guy was necessarily humble. I've got no idea who he was. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, maybe he's a real jerk. I've got no idea. But that's at least what humility looks like. Humility looks like setting aside your agenda, setting aside your goals, setting aside what you want out of a particular situation. You see, each one of us came into this room today with an agenda. We can't, that's what we do. You, might, you can deny it, I would argue that you're wrong. We come with an agenda. And whether that's on the road or at church or in the supermarket or whatever, that agenda normally has us first, us at center. To humble ourselves is to pause and consider what somebody else is going through, to set aside that agenda, set aside that goal, set aside what you want for the sake of another person, and it's to pause and consider that somebody else might have a greater need than you. Like that ambulance had a greater need than that guy. That's what humility looks like. To humble yourself is to put yourself in someone else's shoes and think to yourself, what have they got going on? What roads are they traveling right now? What trials are they facing right now? What difficulties are they wading through right now? What cliffs do they face on the beach ahead? A buddy of mine um, writes a blog. It's called The Plowman's Rest. Really, really great blog. Uh, And he wrote this entry a a couple of years ago. And uh, this entry is called, They Might Have a Cake. I can't remember if I've shared this here or not before. But he writes a story about how he was driving one time and, and the person driving in front of him was not driving to his standards. Now, if you're anything like me, you know exactly what that means. Uh, so he was driving along and the person in front was uh, pulling away at the green light just a little bit too slow. Uh, instead of running, the orange lights was slowing down and actually stopping um, and, and was never quite reaching the speed limit. And he writes that he let this driver know by his car's body language just how disappointed he was with them. Like he made sure they knew knew very well of his presence right there. And as he's getting agitated, as he's swearing under his breath and getting very, very emotional and frustrated, his wife, he writes, his wife simply put her hand on his knee and said, they might have a cake. Now if you've ever driven with a cake in the car, you know you've got to drive very differently. Because if you suddenly hit the brakes or if something happens, if you drive erratically, the birthday party is going to get ruined. And he said as soon as he heard his wife say that, he immediately pulled back. And so I thought, oh, wow, they might have a cake. (laughs) 
And as soon as he thought, what's going on in their life? Something as simple as they might have a cake, which really isn't actually a big deal. As simple as that, he immediately humbled himself and went, oh, what's going on in their life? And he, and he pulled back. We could apply this everywhere. Like the person who serves you at Coles or Woolies, maybe they've got a huge exam in two days' time and they are stressed out of their brains right now. The person who, who bought, you their co- bought you your coffee, like maybe they're just having a really horrible week. The person who's driving way too slow in front of you or way too fiercely behind you, maybe they're on their way home from burying a loved one. The person you're sitting next to at church this morning, what have they got going on? And, And was my agenda this morning to come and serve that person? But maybe the person you're sitting next to or in front of or behind or wherever has had a horrible week. How do we obey Christ's words here, God's words and his word? How do we obey these words when it comes to the church, when it comes to the way that we gather on Sunday mornings? It makes us say less things like, or makes us consider at least less whether we got anything out of the sermon whether we like the quality of the worship or the food or the coffee or anything like that. It makes us come to church on Sunday mornings think, who needs encouragement this morning? Who needs to be lifted up in their faith? And how can I do that? How can I be a part of God's work in doing that? Can we see how radical a life of humility is? It's spectacular. It's beautiful. Our world is starved of humility. We are increasingly becoming conditioned to regard others as the sum worth of their their words and their actions. We look at what they say, we look at what they do, we look at what they write on Twitter, we look at what they post on Instagram, and we make an assumption about who they are as a result of that, and we treat them accordingly, either as an ally or an enemy. But God compels us to look beyond the actions of someone, to look beyond their words, and to consider people as he does, and to see their needs as more important than our own. God compels us to consider others as more important than ourselves. The way God wants us to live is to look to the interests of others. Now, just as a sidebar, this does not mean that we should abandon our theological convictions because somebody else has a different opinion. You can disagree with a brother or sister about a secondary or a tertiary issue and do so in a posture of humility. You can look past that disagreement. You can look past their different political view. You can look past their different view on, on vaccines. You can look past their different... Regardless of how they feel about Albanese or Scott Morrison or whatever, we can look past that. And we can see them as God sees them. Consider them as being more important than ourselves. And that will radically improve the trajectory of that disagreement. It's via humility 
that the church walks in unity. And it's unity that preserves the love and the fellowship and the service and the sacrifice of a gospel-centered community. And when we live that way, we strengthen one another in the faith. That's what makes Paul's joy complete as he writes this to this church in Philippi. He's sitting in jail. He's got joy in them, but he's like, hey, finish the joy. Complete it by putting one another first and so being united to one another so you can strengthen one another in the faith. Now, we might be tempted at this point to think, wow, what a, what a beautiful community that would be. What, imagine being a part of that. That would be so great. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing not just to be a part of, but wouldn't that just be an incredible witness to, to the world around us? And that would be true. However, that's not the motivation that Paul actually lists here at this point in time. And this is critical because if our motivation to be humble and to, and, and to think of others first is because of the benefits of, a, of, a, of, a, of unity in the community or, or the virtue of humility, we'll never actually quite get there. If all Paul said was, be humble, because humble is a good thing to do. Be, be united, because being united is a good thing to do. Then all we would have is a works-based righteousness, and we'd never actually get there. We just think, oh, I should be humble because it's just good. Paul doesn't say that here. He doesn't appeal to the pragmatics and the benefits of a community that functions in humility. He instead appeals to Jesus Christ as our supreme example and motivation for humility. The gospel is our greatest source of humility. And this is what Paul illustrates next. We've talked about the reasons for unity. Then we've talked about the practice of unity, which is humility. This next section illustrates the driving force behind unity, which is the example of humility in Jesus Christ. Paul says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he, came as, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now make no mistake, that is not a throwaway statement. That is one of the high high points of theology in the New Testament. It's one of the highest theological discourses in the whole New Testament. To quote James Boyce, he says that these verses teach the divinity of Christ, his pre-existence, his equality with God the Father, his incarnation in true humanity, his voluntary death on the cross, the certainty of his triumph over evil, and the permanence of his reign. All of that is summed up in these six simple verses. And what Paul is doing here is he is joining together high theology with gritty practice. 
You see, sometimes people want to uh, abandon theology or they think theology might be for the sake of, of more practical expressions of the faith. And other people want to focus on theology, focus on high theology to the detriment, to the disregard of serving others in need. But Paul does neither of those things. He instead connects these moving and beautiful truths about Jesus to a gritty application of the gospel. There is a lot in here. Uh, I had to remove a lot of stuff from my notes just to get this down in size. But we could at least discern, or we could at least sum this up, or at least pile this whole thing up into three discernible piles. We have the preeminence of Jesus, that's in verse 6, the incarnation of Jesus in verses 7 to 8, and then the glorification of Jesus in verses 9 to 11. So firstly, the preeminence of Jesus. Verse 6 makes it incredibly clear that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you won't agree with that. If you're here and you are a Christian, you will agree with that. Jesus is God. He possesses all of the same divine attributes of God. In the same way that God is omniscient, knowing all things, infinitely wise, in the same way that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, infinitely powerful, in the same way that God is omnipresent, so everywhere all at once, and in the same way that God is omnibenevolent, meaning everything that he does is always good, so too is Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 9, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. This past week, the the first images ever taken by the new James Webb Space Telescope were released to the public. I think I've got a picture here uh, on the screen. That's the very first color photo taken with this brand new space telescope. If you're not into space, I apologize. I am. I dig this stuff. It's really cool. This photo here, apart from a half dozen or so stars that are in the foreground, everything else... And those half dozen or so stars in the foreground, they are part of our Milky Way. Everything else is a galaxy representing its own set of trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars. And this photo, this frame, is but a speck on the sky, on the horizon. So if you were to take a grain of sand and put it on the tip of your finger and hold your finger out at arm's length, The space behind the grain of sand that you can't see is what is represented in that photo there. And Jesus created it. Jesus was there creating that with God. In fact, John says that the the whole world was created through Jesus. What does that mean? I have the foggiest idea. Jesus was there. All things were created through Jesus. And let it not be lost on us that Paul is talking about somebody who existed, a a bloke who existed 30 years earlier. That's like us saying, Donald Bradman is God. Sure, he's a great cricketer. Perhaps the best best batsman to have ever lived. But if someone started saying, Donald Bradman is God, we'd all say, you're crazy. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus Christ is God. This is what Christians believe. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're going to think we're crazy for thinking that this person who existed in history, who walked and breathed on earth, he is God. 
If you think that's crazy, you should hear what else we believe. We're going to get into that in a second. Paul says that God, who is holy and righteous and perfect in every way, God who is worshipped 24-7 by the angels, God who created everything out of nothing, God who is higher than us in every possible way and infinitely higher than us in every possible way, that God came to earth. And this is where we get to verse 7, the incarnation of Jesus. Instead of making the most of his position, Jesus emptied himself. Instead of remaining in the form of God, he took on the form of a servant. Now surely that's exactly what Paul means when he wrote earlier to consider others as more important than yourself. And then he says, look at Jesus who came in the form of a servant. Jesus being fully God, condescended and also became fully man. Jesus was not part man, part God. He was not a mix of the two. He was not sometimes God and sometimes man. He was fully God. He is fully God and is fully man. Fully God in the sense that he did not lose his divinity or anything like that. He was also fully man, meaning that he is able to sympathize with our our deepest weaknesses and our greatest struggles. He knows exactly what it's like to be human. We've just got to consider for a moment just how miraculous it is that God came to earth and dwelt among us. God, who is above all humans and all angels, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, came to earth. And he didn't come on a mountaintop in great splendor. He didn't come to a palace in great dignity. He came as a baby in the arms of a young scared mother, surrounded by controversy and intrigue in the back streets of an obscure town into a situation where his life was almost immediately under threat. And that's just the beginning of the humility of Jesus. His humility isn't just in that, it's not just in his incarnation, it's in his crucifixion. Paul says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Whatever we think humility might mean, it has to include this. Humility means obedience to God. If you think that there are some commands in Scripture that you're exempt from because you're special, that God has a special dispensation for you because he he understands your predicament, you've got pride as an issue. Jesus was obedient to God the Father to the point of death And he says, even death on a cross. Crucifixion was so humiliating that the Romans outlawed it for their own citizens. The darling of heaven, the son of God, the creator of the world, hung naked, bruised, with his flesh open, suffocating at the hands of sinful men. Why did he do this? Why did he do that? Well, this is the really crazy stuff that Christians believe. Jesus didn't just just die at the hands of sinful men. He died for the sake of sinful men. Our perfect God put on flesh and died for us. 
We each have the same problem of sin in our hearts. No one is exempt. We each deserve that cross because we stood in front of God and we enthroned ourselves. And we didn't do this just once. We do this every day over and over and over again. I've got no idea how many times I've done this today. How many times I've stood before God and thought, I'm more important. In fact, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said something along the lines of, there is enough sin in a single prayer to make every single one of us worthy of eternal punishment. We deserve that cross, but God took our place. Jesus absorbed God's wrath against our sin on our behalf so that we could be made sinless and righteous and live lives without guilt or shame. That when God looks at us, when we've been united to Jesus by faith, he doesn't see our terrible record. He sees the perfect record of obedience that Jesus Christ earned and that was applied to us, given to us, reckoned to us by God himself when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the extent of the humility of Jesus. He bore our guilt. He bore our sorrows. He bore our shame. And Paul says... In verse 5, adopt that same attitude. Can you feel the, the weight and the gravity of the command to be humble? It doesn't end there, though. Paul goes from preeminence to the incarnation, crucifixion, and now the glorification of Jesus. Because Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God the Father, God the Father highly exalted God the Son, This is exactly what Jesus taught. Four times in the Gospels, Jesus taught that those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. We each have this desire to be exalted and Jesus Jesus teaches us, don't take your own exaltation into your own hands. Leave it to the experts. Humble yourself. Let God exalt you at his time. Don't do your own surgery. Don't exalt yourself. Humble yourself. Therefore, Paul says, God gave him the name that is above every name. There is no one like Jesus. He is far above all other things and beings. Only Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is far more wonderful and excellent and life-giving and sufficient and satisfying and lovely and beautiful and sustaining than anything that we've got going on. His name is above every name. And God gave him that name with a purpose that every single knee that has ever been created will bend and bow. And every single tongue that has ever existed will be loosed and confess that Jesus Christ, he is the Lord. This is one of the most wonderful and exciting snapshots of what God is doing in the world, of God's eternal plan for the world, because it ends with these incredible words, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' pre-existence and his equality with God, his, his condescension and his incarnation to human form, his humility and death on a cross, and his exaltation and glorification to the highest position in eternity all took place so that you and I and everyone else would bow the knee and confess that Jesus is our King, and this is what brings glory to God. 
Jesus is at the center of the universe. And when we enthrone him as he so deserves and not ourselves, we bring glory to God. This is why Paul can say to consider others more important than yourselves because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He humbled himself and he came as a servant to serve us. And that is all the motivation and fuel that we need to think of others first. We don't need to wait until we find a perfect church that does this well. We don't need to wait until someone else does this for us because it's already happened for us in Jesus Christ. The reason for humility is not that it makes for nicer communities, even though it does. The reason for humility is not just because it's a better way to live, even though it is. The reason for humility is Jesus Christ. And we have eternal fuel to be humble towards one another before God. And that kind of Christ-initiated, Christ-centered, and Christ-propelled humility is the driving force behind unity in the church. Consider the brothers and sisters in your church this morning. Consider your church this morning. Consider the trials that they are facing. Consider the issues that they are walking through, the big challenges that they are wrestling with, and consider. God looked at me in my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. What can I do for my brother or sister? How can I encourage them? How can I love them? How can I serve them? How can I pray for them? How can I put them first? How can I look to their needs and their interests first? Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is doing. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ will always do for us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.